0: It's the last one, last sermon in the, in the Gospel of John for about 20 years. So here we go. This is where we find ourselves, and, and it's really this idea of following me. And I think about, you know, in terms of just as we get into this, like, when did you have to follow somebody else, somebody else's direction, somebody else's way of life, modeling yourself? I remember the first time um, that we — I went to New York City. And we were in New York City um, and and it was the first time we were in New York City to actually watch the Yankees play. And I was with my dad, I was with my brother, um, and we were there. And I remember that we had to get on the subway in New York City. Anybody, who's ridden the subway in New York City? just yeah, It's a little bit daunting the first time you go into the subway. Like you go down into the subway, and you know, there's four corners, all these blocks, city blocks, and you go down, and I remember just looking to my father. Uh, even being a, an adult at this point and going, I don't know where we're supposed to go, the green line, the blue line, which stop we're going, which one's an express train, which one's not. And, and you know, there's times where, you know, I would get on a train and my dad would take me to the right place. We would go t- towards the Bronx and get off uh, Yankee Stadium and, and watch a game. But I remember there was one occasion where we did not get on the right train and that I was being led astray. You know, so even though my father had told me to follow him, I was being led astray into Queens and, you know, all, I mean, east, way east. And, and eventually we were like, we're on the wrong train, but it was an express train and we couldn't get off quickly. And so then we had to figure out how to get off, how to go up and down an escalator and down an escalator, get on the right train, go to a transfer station, get to, the, you know, all of those kind of things. And, and when we think about the gospel of John, I I like to think of it as a road map in some way because what what John, the author, the the beloved disciple is trying to show us is he's trying to show us that to love Jesus is to follow his commands. To love Jesus is to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, and to follow him wherever he leads because unlike um, our earthly fathers, he will never lead us astray you will never end up in Queens I just want you to know that you will always go to Yankee Stadium you know and in heaven they'll always I can't say that I mean that's just that's just that's just hope right but in the midst of this you know follow me um, let's let's read uh, the gospel of John I want to read um, John chapter 21 I'm going I'm to go back just a, a couple verses back to verse 18. Uh, Because 18 is the last truly, truly statement. And again, 25 times, 25, 26 times in the Gospel of John, uh, John says, truly, truly. And when he says that, he's saying, this is important. This is significant. So, having said that, let's read the Word of God this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Um, that is, uh, let, me, let me start at the bottom uh, as we look at this. And, and really what we see is, now, there are ma- also many other things that Jesus did. Certainly we find that John did not um, chronicle everything that happened in the life of Jesus. We see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have other accounts. Uh, As a matter of fact, we often think of Matthew, Mark, and Luke being what we would call the synoptic gospels, meaning uh, a a synopsis, as it were, of Jesus' life. But John writes uh, with a different purpose. He's still chronicling Jesus' life, but he doesn't have everything. But again, if you've been following with us and you've been with us for a while, you'll know that in John chapter 20, verse 30, is the reason for why John gave us what he has given us. Because he says in John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, everything that we've read, everything that we've been doing for the last, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 months. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, the, there's all of these metaphors and themes that run throughout the, the, the gospel of John. Uh, when we think about this idea of what John wants is John wants us to, to have life by belief in Jesus, but it's a life that is full of joy. It's a life that is overflowing. It is a life that is flourishing. This idea of life, uh, even back in John chapter 1, as we, as we think about this, you know, John is saying that with Jesus... Your life will be amazing, but apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, we think about that in John chapter 15. And throughout this, and, and really, for, for the Gospel of John, for me, um, how many of you have ever been reading a series of books and you get to the end of the books and you begin to read slower because you know that the end is there and you're becoming sad because you don't know what you're going to read next? You know what I'm talking about? And then it's really sad. I mean, whether it's, I remember um, reading, I mean, uh, after seminary, I read this, uh, Fantasy series called *The Wheel of Time*, which is like this fifteen. Like uh, each book is like eight hundred pages, and by the time you has, have invested that much time in all these characters, when it ends, you're sadder. I remember reading um, C.S. Forrester's *Horatio Hornblower* series, and it was a glorious series. But at the end, I was I was starting to just lament the fact that the series was going to end. Or, or, some of you, you know, and, and some of you have read like the Harry Potter series, and I think *Harry Potter* the *Harry Potter* series is, is really really good literature, um, and, and yet. When you, end, when you finish it, oftentimes some children don't even know what to read next because everything that they read next pales in comparison, and so it's a struggle sometimes. But when we get here to the end of the Gospel of John, we go, okay, but everything here is written so that I might believe and have life in his name. And again, Jesus has done so much that even, even if all the, all the books in the world all the libraries, everything in the world, it could not contain the books that, could be, that would be written about Jesus. Now, also, when we think about this, we think about Jesus and, and the author of, of the Gospel of John. And this is why we know it's the Gospel of John. When he says, I am the one who is bearing witness about these things in verse 24. I'm bearing witness about these things and, and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now that we there is he's talking about the church, this, this, this royal we, this royal we which says, we know that these things are true because we testify that we were eyewitnesses to these accounts. So again, everything that John is writing and as we come to the end of John, we go, thank you, John, for writing that. Thank you, Father, for, for inspiring this man to write these words so that our faith might be bolstered and encouraged. But let me get to um, the main point today. Um, when we, when we, what we find ourselves, and I really appreciate Mark uh, and Tyler leading us the last couple weeks, but what we find is that at the end of John chapter 21, there is this restoration that occurs in the life of Peter. And, and Mark did a fabulous job um, uh, regarding this, but just as, in terms of context, in terms of what we're thinking about, we know that, you know, when, when, when Peter finds Jesus and he's fishing with his brothers and they're in the Sea of Galilee, they're in a familiar place, and then when, when Peter sees Jesus and they recognize that it's Jesus on the shoreline, like Peter th- puts on his outer garment, which I don't understand. I, I, that's a question I have. Like, why did you put more clothes on to jump into the water? I don't know if it was propriety or what, but I'm thinking like I would want to be as free as I possibly could rather than swimming in my clothes. But in almost a, a Forrest Gump seeing Lieutenant Dan on the pier type of image. We see him just you know, hurl himself into the water just so that he can be near Jesus. And in the midst of this charcoal fire and this, this fellowship and this communion, we find that Peter is restored to Jesus. And in the same way, in John chapter 18, where Peter is um, denying Jesus you know, to, to the slave girl, to those around the charcoal fire, you know, we find that Jesus now restores Peter to fellowship. He restores him, he, he um, reorients his perspective, and he, and he commissions him, them, him to go out. And and he does it not just, you know, uh, once or twice, but he does it three times. And I think he does it three times so that he's essentially restoring Peter three times, just like he denied him three times. And in the same way that Matthew 28 is the Great Commission, oftentimes that we think about the Great Commission. You know, let me just read it. Uh, I have most of it memorized, but I don't want to paraphrase the Word of God here. When we think about Matthew 28, He says, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We think of that as the great commission, but there's also this great commission in the the gospel of John. And it is, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. It is, feed my lambs. And we see that with John. So at this point, And this is what I'm trying to build up to. We find that Peter, spending time with Jesus, eyes fixed on Jesus, restored to the community. Remember, Peter's the one who's gonna, you preach at Pentecost, Peter's gonna have a wonderful testimony and a a wonderful life of service to the King of Kings and then be ushered into the glory of the Father through the Son. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that, you know, Jesus says to follow me and Peter, just like you and me, puts his foot in his mouth again. I don't know if you know that. I mean, at the end of the Gospel of John, and it's so just fascinating to me, because when Jesus said to him, lastly, in verse 17, feed my sheep, he then says, truly, truly. He says, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. Now, We don't know this for a fact, but the history of the church has said that that is regarding Peter's death and that Peter died um, under crucifixion, under Nero's um, tyranny. And so when when it says stretching his hands out, um, Jesus is actually saying that you will die and your death um, will glorify me. Again, in verse 19, it says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, again, I don't think Peter understood everything at this point. He just knows that what Jesus is saying is, he goes, I want you to follow me. I want you to to follow me. Now, Now, when we think about the idea of following Jesus, we think about these things. When he says, follow me, we want to follow him to find love. We want to follow him because we know that we have forgiveness in Christ. And in the midst of this, this love and this forgiveness, we find great joy in knowing that we are known but forgiven and loved by a father, and his love will, will be unending. An and that there's this reconciliation that happens between um, the enemies of God and they become the adopted family members and children of God. We find all of those things. And, and when we follow Jesus, this is what we find. We find purpose. We find joy. We find peace. And when you follow Jesus, you, you get all of this. But, but when we follow Jesus, we also follow him into doing the father's business. So if you, if you are a child of God, you are also in the family business, okay? And the family business... Is glorifying the Father, becoming ambassadors for His kingdom, telling others about all the benefits and joys we have in Christ. And we may at times even have to tell them of the difficulties of those who do not follow Christ. And so when we are adopted into the family, we are called to love. But one of the ways that we are called to love, and we see this in John chapter 14, that if you love Jesus, you will obey my commandments. And so when when Peter hears the words, follow me, it's not just you know come beside me or, or follow after me, it's I want you to follow me into my love, but also follow me into the purpose that I have for you. And in the midst of this purpose, your life will be meant to glorify the Father. And it doesn't mean, again, Peter died a martyr's death. He was crucified, and yet what Jesus says is, this is a better life for you, Peter. It will be better for my Father, And it will be better for you. So this idea of following is a difficult one for us, because not only that, we 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 are called to follow Him into death, especially into the death of self. Not doing what I want to do, but what Jesus calls me to do. You see, when we are reconciled to the Father, we are loved by the Father. And then we obey the Father, and that's, that's hard. I don't know um, if you, if you the, the idea of theory and practice or execution are two different things. Like in theory, I know that when I line up the golf ball on the tee box, that in theory, it should go right down the middle. And what I envision is just a little baby draw that goes like 330, maybe 350. That's what I dream about, right? That's, that's a pipe dream, by the way, you know? But when I hit the ball, it goes 50 yards left, hook, slice all over. So theory is one thing, practice is another. You guys get that, right? Theory and practice. And so so Peter understands, like, I need to follow Jesus, but man, it's going to be hard. But Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And, And if I, again, when we think about John chapter 14, Uh, 15 when he says to us if you love me you will keep my commandments and that's a hard saying but then he says and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him for you know him for he dwells with you and will be with you I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you so there's this this beautiful promise that that Jesus says I want you to follow me but I'm I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you will understand what is true and what is right and what is beautiful. Now, if if, again, Jesus has just restored Peter and he says, follow me, and he gives him a hard saying, but then notice what Peter does in verse 20. You just got to see this. I mean, Peter, Peter, Turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had leaned against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about this guy? Like, you just told me a really hard thing about me, but Lord, what about this guy? Now, I want you to think about this because this is Peter. This is who he is. You know, when we think about, uh, I, I believe in, in Matthew, um, as well as in Luke, when, when Peter goes out into the boat to walk on water, what, it, what happens? He takes his eyes off of Jesus. And when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he sees the storm that's going around and the wind and the waves, and he begins to worry about the wind and the waves, he begins to sink. Now, we look at that and on one side, we go like Peter had more faith than everybody else in the boat. And yet what we find is that when Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, he sinks. And metaphorically, he is sinking right now. Okay? When he is taking his eyes off of Jesus, he's communing with Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and he goes from communing and and having a breakfast and being restored to he's like, yeah, but what about this guy? What about this guy? And this is where theory and practice come in. This is when I know I'm called to follow Jesus, but what about other people? How, how do I actually execute that? I think about this uh, in this way. Um, some of you have coached, how many, how many of you have ever coached a sport, like for your children or, or small kids? Anybody? You know, So coaching a sport is a very sanctifying thing. Uh, if you have coached any of your children, it is a sanctifying thing. And not just for you, it's also sanctifying for your spouse who has to watch you coach your child and lose your mind, um, all of those things. But I remember uh, vividly, I have a vivid recollection of this. My son, my older son, um, he is 12 years old. And I always tell him that he peaked at about 12 years old. That's just kind of the way it is, at least athletically, right? So he's 12 years old, he's playing baseball, and, and he's really, really good. He's A big left-handed kid, and, and he just crushes the ball. And and so he's 12 years old, he gets up to the plate, and on the way to the game, here's what I'm telling him. I'm like, hey man, when you're in the plate, first pitch, what are you looking for? And, he, and, he, and this is our catechism. This is our baseball catechism, right? Our baseball catechism is this, you know, it's waist high, middle in. First pitch, waist high, middle in, it's got to be my pitch. Which what that means is, it's got to be waist high, it's middle of the plate or in, and I'm going to hit the ball out of the park, or I'm going to hit a gap shot. All right. First pitch, middle in. First pitch, middle in. Belt high, middle in. That's all it is. What are you looking for? Belt high, middle in. Belt high, middle in. So he gets up to the plate and, and this kid, and he's batting third because, again, he's, he's really, really good uh, at this time. Again, he peaked at 12. You know, so all of these things are happening. And he gets up to the plate and the two previous guys at the plate, and apparently he wasn't watching, this, this pitcher had just this weak, pathetic curveball. It kind of looped in and it would almost always just bounce in the dirt. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, and I'm sitting there on third base, and I'm like, right here, man, right here, dead red, belt high, middle in, belt high, middle in. And he's like, got it, got it, got it. He touches his helmet. He understands what I'm going. He gets up there, and what does he do? It's the weakest, most pathetic curveball I've ever seen a 12-year-old throw. It bounces in front of the plate. He pulls his head out. He swings at it. And then he looks at me and goes, uh. <laughs> and I look at him, and I go, oh, my goodness. Oh my god, this is when I began to, the mantra, my joy is not dictated by 12-year-olds playing baseball. My joy is not dictated by 12-year-olds playing baseball. I just remember saying that over and over and over again. And so, you know, after the game I said, "Hey son, what were you thinking that first pitch?" He goes, belt high middle in." I said, like, "What would you do?" Pulled my head, swung at a bad curveball and just got in the hole. And I'm like, "Yeah, why'd you do it?" He goes, "I don't know." Well, I think that's also Peter but I think that's us, too. When we take our eye off the ball, when, when we, we take our eye and we get, we get nervous, we get, you know, flustered, when, when life comes at us, sometimes we're just trying to take a swing and just trying to make contact, and we don't even know what we're doing. Any of you guys f- felt like that? But here's the beauty. The beauty is that when my, if I had been a good father, you know, at the time, when he looked up, I would have said, hey, man, I love you. Just keep playing. I love watching you play. By the way, if you're a parent who's watching sports, those are the only things you should ever say to your children after they come off the field. I love watching you play. That's it. Because they know all the bad stuff they've done. They even know some of the great stuff they've done. But all you need to say is, I love watching you play. And in the same way that when we go to our Father in heaven and we've blown it. And I don't know. I mean, some of you you have swung at a bad curveball this week. (laughs) Some of you have totally blown it with, with the way that you've responded to your spouse, the way that you've lost your, ang- uh, your temper, all of those things. When we go to our father, he says, I love you, and I will restore you to fellowship. That's the beauty of what we see in John chapter 21. That's the beauty of what John is trying to relay to us. He's saying, regardless of how many times you swing at a bad pitch, Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. So keep coming. Keep coming and coming. Now, what we find is that there are opportunities that we have. Um, again, when, when Jesus says, follow me, he also uses this term, um, my, my yoke is easy. You know, when, in Matthew chapter 11, we read about when Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, let me explain to you what a yoke is. I'm, I'm quoting um, um, uh, John Michael Comer here who in, in his book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of the Hurry, uh, I think is a really good book by the way. He says this, a yoke was a common idiom in the first century for a rabbi's way of reading the Torah. But it was also more. It was his set of teaching on how to be human, his way to shoulder the, the weight of life, marriage, divorce, prayer, money, sex, conflict resolution, government, all of it. It's an odd image for those of us who don't live in an agrarian society, but imagine two oxen yoked together to pull a cart or a plow a field. A yoke is how you shoulder a load. And when he, talks, or when he tells you to take his yoke, he is inviting you to be his disciples, or he uses this term, which, which might help us a little bit, or to apprentice under him. And he, and he says just three things. He says, to apprentice under Jesus is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and do what he would do if he were you. <laughs> That's what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and do what he would do if he were you. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, uh, these particular verses. He says about being weary and heavy laden. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything or heave on you, anything ill-fitting upon you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. But the problem, the problem or one of the problems with with being with Jesus, and again, keeping our eye on the ball, right? Keeping our eye on, again, I'm using a sports image here, but keeping our eye on the ball, or keeping our eye upon Jesus, is that what happens sometimes is when life comes along, or we see other people around us, we get distracted, and we begin to compare ourselves to others. Anybody here ever do that? Everybody, anybody here look around and go, man, I wish I had their life. Man, I wish I had that type of relationship with my kids the way they do with their kids. Man, I, I wish, um, Paul Tripp actually talks about this funny story at one point where he was having an a, a, a intense fellowship with his wife or an argument and in the midst of having this argument, he was a pastor at the time and he actually, um, uh, I, I can't remember, it's Lucilla, I think his name, his wife's name. Um, anyway, he, he says to his wife, he goes, you know that 98% of the women in our church would love to be married to me. And she looked at him and she goes, count me in the two percent, <laughs> is what she said to him. You know, again, when we begin to compare ourselves to others, here's what happens though, and this is the, the, the twisting of our, of our hearts here, when it says, when we begin to look at other people and compare them, oftentimes our hearts do one of two things. Either we like our situation better than theirs, which can either lead us to gratitude For for all that we have, all that we are, every skill, gift, and ability that you have comes from your Father in heaven, and we can be thankful, or it can cause us to be self-righteous and prideful. That's That's what happens when we see somebody and we feel better about our position than them. Oftentimes, the sinful part of us makes us proud. Or, if we look at somebody else's position, and we want their position over our own, it makes us envious. And when envy comes in, we begin to not believe in the plan God has for us. When we we think about, well, their plan and their life is so much better than mine, we begin to envy and what the devil will use in the flesh and the world will say is, you can't really trust and believe in the goodness of God. You can't really believe that he has good for you. And that's where When when, when those occasions arise within our lives, that's when I think that we really have to run to um, the Scriptures, certainly. But we have to run to places like Psalm 73. Um, When I think about Psalm 73, um, it's it's a great passage um, talking about when somebody almost had their feet slip out from underneath them. In in Psalm 73, verse 2, it says, But as for me, uh, in verse 1, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, we could also replace wicked with those just around us as well. Not only do the wicked prosper, but what about those around me that I compare myself to? It just seems like everything's going well for them. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I don't even know what that means exactly, fat and sleek, but um, I'm sure it's a, it's a great Hebrew idiom there. Yeah, they are they're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. And he keeps on going, and he, and he says, for all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know, like, I, I've kept all of the, your commandments in verse 13. I've, I, in, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So here it is. I'm faithful. They're not. And, and I can't even figure this out. And then, this is, this is the pivot point. This is the pivot point. And he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. There is this picture of comparison that we go, will Jesus, you know, fulfill his promises to you? Yes, but it's in glory. It's in eternity. And so we as the people of God have got to fix our eyes on the glory that is to come. And what happens is when we begin to compare our lot in life with another, we begin to have a creaturely, finite perspective and we no longer think about the glory of heaven. We only think about today. That's a struggle. Um, again, um, Paul Tripp, in, in an article he was writing, um, was talking about a, a client that he had. And this, um, this woman's name is Mary. He said, Mary sat in my office and said, I'm discouraged, angry, and envious. She talked of watching her life come unraveled as she had lost her husband, her home, and even her children. Mary came from a good church and knew the scriptures, but her situation made no sense to her. She said, I have no reason to get up in the morning. She talked of her jealousy toward people who seemed to do whatever they pleased, and yet all went well with their lives. Most of all, she struggled with anger toward God. How can he say that he loves me, she cried. Is this the abundant life he promised? I really thought that he would meet all my needs and, and here I am with nothing. I can't read my Bible. I can't pray. I can't make it through a church service without tears or anger. I look at my life and I look at the promises of scripture and it doesn't seem to add up. I'm no better off than the average non-Christian. And what you know, Paul Tripp says, um, he says, now surely Mary, Mary has suffered. There are also crucial errors in the way that she looks at her life. Does Christ promise to restore her to her former way of life? No. But Christ, but Jesus does promise to restore her. He does promise to restore her in the end. And he says what she's missing is an eternal perspective what it means to be there with him. And when, when we think about this idea of comparison, this is what Peter is struggling with in John chapter you know, 21. I mean, John chapter, not only is he distracted, but we also find that you know, he begins to um, say, hey, you know, it seems like Peter's life, you know, or, or John's life seems to be better than mine. So, so what, what's going on here? Uh, Matthew Henry um, also says this, not only do we struggle with envy and pride, but, but how many of us, Matthew Henry says this, so apt, so apt are we to be busy in other men's matters, okay, get this, in other men's matters, but negligent in the concerns of our own souls, quick-sighted abroad, but dim-sighted at home, judging others and prognosticating what they will do when we have enough to do to prove our own work and understand our own way. How many of us are really, really good At pointing out the flaws in other people i think of it as my one of my spiritual gifts really (laughs) you know like your marriage i can see all the flaws in your marriage your children certainly you know the way you read your bible i mean the way your prayer life's going all of these other things if you come in i can probably give you some criticism with regard to hopefully it's constructive you know with regard to all these things but you know where i'm blind to man i'm blind to my own blindness I do not see. I mean, how many of you are really, really good at playing speck and log with all the people around you? You know, like, I can see all the logs in your eyes, but I can't see the speck in my own eye. I mean, we struggle with that. And what what happens is when we begin to compare ourselves to others, we almost always compare ourselves spiritually to others who are not doing as well, and then we feel good about ourselves. And yet, we have a lot of work to do. A tremendous amount of work to do in our own lives, in our own loves, in in, in pursuing Christ and loving others as Jesus has called us to love. About Even when I say the word self-sacrifice, some of you probably get the shivers because you're like, it's so hard. It's so hard to die to self and live for Jesus because I want to do what I want to do. And I want to do it when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I don't want anybody to get in my way. Yet this is all that happens in the midst of this comparison. And again, what is it? It's taking our eye off the ball. We can't do it. I remember, um, again, as a coaching metaphor, I had this young man. Again, it it was the same team I think that Benjamin was on. He was not the best player on the team. He had never played baseball before. And I remember um, we were at batting practice for the first time. And I said, well, hey, you know, grab a bat and go, you know. And so he grabbed a bat, no helmet, no helmet. We're in the batting cage. And, and he, he, I'm not kidding when I say this. He literally stood on top of the plate facing me with the bat over his head like, like this. And I'm like, well, me hitting you might be the best chance you have of getting on base. But that is, you're going to get hurt, man. And, and, and yet, you know, so what does it mean that, that I take him and I correct him and I, you know, I bring him over to a T initially and I begin to work with him and work with him and work with him? That's the same thing that God does with us. He works with us and he works with us and he teaches us. And so, brothers and sisters, are we going to be teachable? Are we going to listen to the words of John? Are we going to listen so that we can grow in love and we can grow in obedience so that we can be a part of the family business, so that we can grow the family business and expand the kingdom of God for his glory and our good. You know, the, um, what affords us the opportunity to be a part of the family business is the death of Jesus upon the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself all the sins of everyone who would believe in him, and when we think about baptism as this washing and this necessity of washing, we think about the, this bread, which is, um, represents his body given, freely given for us. And we think about this cup, and we think about this, this juice representing his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, of the new covenant of grace and mercy. And we go, I am a part of God's family and a part of the family business and called to obedience And called to great love because of all that Jesus has done for me. In 1 Corinthians, um, we read about this. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And again, when I think about Psalm 73, in the midst of almost losing our steps and struggling, what gives the psalmist perspective? In verse 15, he says, "Um, but, but I remembered, I remembered that when I came into, until I, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Brothers and sisters, as you come forward for communion, I want you to think about the plan that God has for you in particular. I want you to think about that the life he has given you is the life that he has called you to and that he loves you. And if you've taken your eye off the ball, then communion is an opportunity for you to reaffirm your faith and trust in him in the way that he has called you uniquely to himself. This is not the table of grace, Presbyterian Church, but rather it is the table of the Lord. And he invites all those who trust and believe in him to partake. If you don't believe, then go find an elder afterwards. We would love to talk to you about what Jesus has done and who he is. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I I pray, Lord, that you would set aside this bread and this juice from their common use. And Father, that you would... They will always remain bread and juice, but Father, you, you pour out your grace upon us. Father, you meet us in this supper. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would trust and believe all the more. Father, forgive us for taking our eye off the ball. Forgive us for not following you when you call us to. Forgive us, Father, for comparing ourselves to others. And Father, restore the joy of salvation. Restore what it means to, to be in fellowship with you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would know that this is not a meal for those who have it all together, but this is a meal for those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us and nourish us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.